Curtis Penfold here. I'm speaking today with a very interesting person for today's podcast here at BYU's College of Physical and Mathematical Sciences. Dr. Daniel Pearson has bachelor's degrees in Greek and philosophy and a PhD in Near Eastern languages and cultures. He's a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at BYU, is co-founder of Mormon Scholars Testify, and is former director of outreach for BYU's Neil A. Maxwell's Institute for Religious Scholarship. Dr. Peterson will be speaking at this year's Summer Hayes Lecture, September 19th at 7 p.m. in the Joseph Smith Building Auditorium on BYU campus. We're glad to have you with us here today, Dr. Peterson. Good to be here. So, Dr. Peterson, nowadays, um, people look back at the history of science and they say, wow, religion has constantly been against science. Um, what do you have to say to such people? That's a, that's a really oversimplified view of, of the history of religion and science. And to a large extent, it's false. It simply isn't true. For much of its history, science was considered the handmaiden. Natural theology it was, you know, it went hand in hand with, with uh, religion. And many of the earliest practitioners of, of even modern science were deeply religious people. Uh, uh, for example, Copernicus was a canon of the cathedral in Prague. Kepler thought that when he was, you know, coming up with the, the, the theory of planetary motion, the elliptical orbits and so on, that he was thinking God's thoughts after him. That's the way they viewed it. There was not a conflict. They were, they were decoding what God had done. And Galileo talks about uh, there being two books in which we can learn about God, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. So, so you don't think that they contradict. There's a history between the ancient Greeks and Islam and Christianity and its role in the science today. Do you think that it's influenced science and mathematics today? Oh, absolutely. Much of what we know as science today wouldn't have been done without that religious impetus uh, to understand the mind of God by looking at, at nature. And um, granted, nowadays, there's, there, many scientists are not religious, although a surprising number and a consistent number over the past century have been religious. Uh, there have been surveys that indicate that about the same percentage of scientists believe in a personal God today as did a century ago. Um, and it's a, it's a larger percentage than many would, would imagine. Um, so there's a great deal of religious motivation uh, in early modern scientists, in, especially in ancient medieval science. Uh, but even today, I think many would say that what motivates them is a sense of wonder at the universe, which is a, a kind of religious impulse in and of itself. Even Einstein, who didn't believe in a personal God, as far as we can tell, uh, still talked about that religious impulse and the existence of some spirit that is greater and wiser than we can comprehend. What do you think is the future of religion and science today? Well, you know, it, it varies. There are some areas where there seem to be tensions between current scientific theories and, and current understandings of religious doctrines. In other areas, it seems to me that um, science and religion have been converging. There's a famous book published years ago by Robert Jastrow called God and the Astronomers. And he was talking about the Big Bang, the idea of creation. And he said uh, he himself was not, as far as I know, particularly religious. But he said it's kind of disheartening for some scientists to have labored up the mountain. They get to the peak, and there they discover a group of theologians have been there all along um, with this idea of God creating the universe in one enormous act of creation. And he saw the Big Bang as fulfilling, in a way, the, the description of Genesis. Um, so for some, science and religion seem to be converging, not diverging. Now, obviously, nowadays you see a lot of atheists in the scientific field. Yeah. Um, some of which 
kind of push this naturalist worldview on, on science. Um, what, what do you think about the strong atheist movement that exists right now? Well, there are some out there, although surprisingly, many of the, the most vocal atheists are not scientists. They're people who presume to speak on behalf of science. Um, Christopher Hitchens was not a scientist. Uh, several of the, the new atheists now are not actually scientists. You have a, a prominent scientist like Richard Dawkins at Oxford, who is a very vocal atheist. But by the same token, Francis Collins, who is the director of the Human Genome Project, is a very devout Christian. And there are a surprisingly large number of those out there. Alan Sandage, a, a really eminent astronomer who just passed away a couple of years ago, became a, a devout Christian relatively late in his life, partly because he was so impressed by the cosmic order. He just felt that it, it could not um, be explained by chance. It didn't seem random to him. Do you think that uh, science with the naturalist worldview uh, has become disenchanted? Yeah, I th people have talked about, um, the, the phrase is very common, the idea of the disenchantment of the world, you know, that once we lived in a world full of, you know, spirits in the trees and things like that, our ancestors, distant ancestors, believed in such things. We don't. I mean, it's not a spirit that makes the tree uh, do what it does. It's uh, photosynthesis, you know, that kind of thing. We understand these things as chemical processes. Uh, so to that extent, there, there's less room, it seems, for... Uh, for spirits to be active in the forests or for demons to be eating the moon during eclipse or something like that. Um, on the other hand, um, and this is one of the things that I'm going to argue in my, in my talk, there are reasons to look at the universe and say, you know, there seems to be mind involved in this. Within a less than a second, far less than a second, a, a billionth of a second, um, all the laws of nature are in place after the uh, Big Bang. And on one level, you say, well, of course, of course, they have to be. We have them now. But on another level, you have to say, well, how did that happen? Why is it that this explosion is so orderly? Um, why is it that there are laws? And the very fact that, that, that there are laws of nature is not obvious if you think about it. I, there's a wonderful line from Einstein who says, uh, uh, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible that it even does make sense, or, or a wonderful essay written by a, another um, a German Nobel laureate, Eugene Wigner, um, who wrote an essay called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. Um, and um, he, what he was saying was, why is it the case that a mathematician can sit in his study, he's not looking at anything in the outside world, he comes up with a mathematical theory, something completely nuts like imaginary numbers, and then a few years later, they discover there is a use in nature, in natural law, for imaginary numbers. Why is it that mathematics maps onto the universe as well as it does? Again, we take it for granted, but we shouldn't take it for granted. The universe is orderly and law-like, and that's deeply weird. So you feel maybe there's a re-enchantment of the universe with science? I think there is, at least a partial re-enchantment of the universe. And, you know, I would say, and, and people need to understand, I'm not here to argue that science proves the existence of God. There are some out there who would argue that. I'm not unsympathetic to them, but I'm not going to push it that far. What I want to say is what we're learning about the, the universe, the macrocosm, um, is consistent with the idea that there is mind at the very heart of it, that mind may be an irreducible part of the universe, as well as matter is, that orderliness and rationality, uh, almost, if you will, planning, design, I, I don't want to push it that far, but, 
But those sorts of things seem to be there from the very start, that if you take a number here and there, certain physical uh, constants and uh, ratios and so on, if, if you alter them even a little tiny bit, there wouldn't be stars. There wouldn't be any, any matter beyond hydrogen. There wouldn't be life. Um, that's what people mean when they sometimes talk about the fine-tuning of the universe, you know, that, that um, well, there's a theory out there called the anthropic cosmological principle, uh, which is that somehow the universe exists in such a way as to produce us. Um, and we thought that was done away with by science, you know, that, that science had ruled that we were just, it's pure chance that we came along the way we did and so on. And then there are other people saying, well, no, it's not, if it is chance, Man, we won the cosmic lottery, uh, and that's a little hard to explain. You talk about the changing cosmologies when our ancestors seem to have viewed the universe very differently than we do now, um, which some people today view it as being kind of chaotic, and other people view it as being so orderly it's amazing. Yeah. Um, what I'm wondering is, how do you think the cosmology of the universe has changed over time? and especially in its relationship between religion and science. Yeah, well, the narrative that I grew up with with was that uh, pre-Copernican people had believed that the Earth was at the center of the cosmos, at the center of the universe, everything was arranged around us. Copernicus displaced the Earth from its privileged location, made us just one ordinary planet in an ordinary solar system, in an ordinary galaxy, not even a really prominent place within the galaxy. So, you know, we were demoted in effect, that humans don't seem all that significant. This is misreading um, the history of science, I think, in a serious way, two serious ways, really. The Earth wasn't at the center of the universe because it was privileged, because it was important. It was at the center of the universe because all the cruddiest stuff in the universe fell to the bottom. And uh, the Earth was like the cosmic waste dump. You know, you had, um, you have four elements, uh, Earth, water, air, and fire. Each one is successively lighter than the one before, Earth being the heaviest. So fire is what's up there beyond the cosmic spheres. That's where God and the angels or the gods dwell in the Ptolemaic view of the universe. The heavy stuff, the, the really dull, cloddy stuff falls to the center. And that's the Earth. And that's us. Uh, and we're walking around on the, on the Earth. And if you look at a later development of it in Dante's Inferno, um, what's at the absolute center of the Earth? Hell. I mean, that's the worst place in the universe. So being at the center of the universe wasn't a, a good thing. The Earth wasn't dethroned when it was moved from the center. It, putting us there wasn't enthroning us. That was the lowest place you could be, literally the lowest. And your goal was to ascend up through the planetary spheres to get to the presence of God. So first of all, we misunderstand what Copernicus did, who, remember, was a, um, a, a clergyman. He was not anti-religious. Um, but then, uh, by the same token, we begin to learn that, that the, the Earth is unique. It really is. Um, it, uh, if it weren't where it is in the solar system, life wouldn't be possible. If the solar system weren't where it is in the galaxy, life probably wouldn't be possible. A lot of things have been fine-tuned, seemingly, to, um, to make life possible here. And so the Earth seems rather more important. You know, I was taught, the narrative I learned when I was growing up was basically the Earth is an unimportant, undistinguished place. We now know that that's not quite true. There was a book uh, published by an evangelical astronomer a number of years ago with a great title called Privileged Planet. Um, but by the same token, another book making similar points was published by a couple of, as far as I know, secular astronomers, and it's called Rare Earth. Um, and the point of both of these books is that 
the earth isn't ordinary. The earth, it, it, it isn't just like life could happen anywhere. Um, this planet is, is very special. Um, it doesn't have to be at the center of the universe to be special. Um, and it is. I find it interesting that you talk about Copernicus um, being religious. Um, and you've spoken a little bit about Galileo as well. There's kind of the stereotype that Copernicus had to keep secret his worldview, um, his cosmology from the rest of the world, and that Galileo was fighting against the Catholic Church. Sure. So there's kind of this I, image of the war on religion. And when people think of religion and science conflicting with one another, they think of those moments in history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Galileo tri trial in particular is the one that people point to and say, look, it's the church against science. That's a big oversimplification. Um, one of Galileo's um, friends, a guy named Cardinal Bellarmine, uh, was asked at one point, well, so what if you... Um, what if you believed that, the, what if you were convinced by Galileo that, that um, the sun is at the center of the solar system? He said, well, you know, I could accept that. That's not a problem. We'd have to reinterpret certain scriptural passages because it seems that the earth is at the center in those. But I'm not really upset with that. Um, the people who were opposed to Galileo were the Aristotelians of his day. It wasn't so much Galileo against the church. It was Galileo against the establishment science of his period, which was taught by the church, because the church was the, you know, the, the great institution of its time. Um, but it was Aristotle, really. They had taken Aristotle as the equivalent of Holy Scripture. And Aristotle seemed to presuppose an, uh, an earth at the center of the solar system, what we call the solar system. And, um, and so they said, you're a quack. Well, the other thing is, Galileo's view of the universe, Copernicus for that matter, didn't quite fit the observational data. If you know about the history of astronomy, you remember that they began to have, in order to account for planetary motions, which didn't seem to fit a pure circular notion, they eventually would have cycles on the, on the orbits of the planets, and then epicycles, so that Mars appeared to go backwards sometimes and things like that. The reason is the, um, the circular scheme of the universe didn't really fit the astronomical data. They had very good data at the time. Uh, and especially in the next hundred years or so. It's not until Kepler comes up with elliptical orbits that the observational data actually fits uh, a, a, a heliocentric, a sun-centered solar system. And so the scientists of Galileo's day actually had reasons for opposing him. His view didn't obviously account for the data. It seemed to have problems. It, it helped in some ways, and it didn't fit in others. And, uh, and so it's not a clear-cut case of religion versus science. It's two views of science squaring off against one another. And it, what complicated it was that Galileo had gone out of his way, he was kind of a sarcastic character, gone out of his way to sort of irritate the Aristotelians. So when they finally got some power over him, they really let him have it. But it's, it's a nice morality play, you know, this Galileo, the hero of science versus the evil oppressive church. But the church wasn't so oppressive quite. And Galileo isn't quite the saint that he's been portrayed as being, and his theory wasn't as strong as it seemed, as it seems to us now. We say, well, obviously the sun's at the center of the solar system. It wasn't so obvious then. And I mean, just look, the, the observational data, it just looks like the Earth is at the center. And a lot of people just took the common sense view. I go out in the morning, I see the sun rise. In the evening, I see the sun set. You know, it's obvious. The Earth doesn't move. I don't feel it moving. There's no wind or anything like that. There'd have to be an enormous wind coming if we were zipping through space at this high speed. They had arguments. And um, in retrospect, we see they were wrong. 
But at the time, this was not completely crazy. Well, that's definitely a, a different look on the subject, which um, I think people are going to be really enlightened by. And I'm really excited for your presentation that's coming up. Uh, I hope that it helps people look at the relationship between religion and science, relook at it, and maybe not look at religion as the enemy or religious people not look at science as the enemy, which is a limited view, but still there. Um, so I, I am very excited by uh, by your presentation. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's a chance for me to formulate thoughts that I've been having for years and, and put them together. Into, I hope it will be a coherent presentation. <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Pierce. Thank, thank, you. thank you for your time. And if our listeners would like to hear Dr. Peterson speak, register online at summerhaze.byu.edu and come to this year's Summer Haze Lecture, September 19th at 7 p.m. in the Joseph Smith Building Auditorium on BYU campus.